When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey guys, I'm taking some time off for the holidays, but we've put together something really special for you. Producer Katie Jensen has compiled the best of the imposter so far. The imposter, our arts and culture show hosted by Aliyah Pabani. It's still a baby of a show. It's only 18 episodes old, but they're already doing like really wonderful stuff and very, very different stuff. I can't really think of any other podcast out there that sounds like it. Their project is so much greater than what I had in mind. When we were first talking about an arts and culture show, my idea for a title was Neat Stuff. You know, just Neat Stuff, like a weekly compilation of Neat Stuff that you might want to know about albums and movies and stuff like that. And that was never going to happen with Aaliyah as the host of this show. And I'm glad it didn't happen. It has taken on a life of its own and become its own very unique thing. So I know that a lot of you have never listened to The Imposter. And I think that there are some of you who listened to the first episode and said, no, this isn't really for me. I want you to listen to what they've done since then. I want you to listen to the best of The Imposter. And I want you to subscribe to The Imposter if you like what you hear and tell people about it. Here we go. From Canada land, 
This is The Imposter, and I'm Aliyah Pabani. On this episode, we're going to play you some of our favorite stuff from this past year. Lido Pimienta is a visual artist, she's a performer, and she makes incredible music. She also makes candles of these strange alien figures with two heads. And she's successful not only because she's incredibly talented, but also because she's a hustler. For our listeners who haven't heard your music, Lido, would you be able to describe your music? On my Facebook description, I call it Pop Satanico or Musica Satanica. Because when I was growing up in South America, I used to love like metal. It's pop, Afro-Colombian beats. Um, it's simple, but complicated. I don't know. I defy labels. I defy category. Like mm-hmm. I, I, you just have to listen. So you were born in Barranquilla. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Or mm-hmm. somewhat correctly? Yep. <laughs> in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And you've been making music since you were 11? Yeah. Is that true? Mm-hmm. So yeah. how did you get into making music? Um, it's just a precocious child, you know? Like I was in this program for like gifted children in the arts. So I was going to school and then I had to go to university for Wait, my art classes. How old were you um, when you were in university? Yeah, in 11, 12, <laughs> yeah. Until 16, okay. 17. I didn't really have friends in the art department. I All my friends were in the music department. So I just was with these people. And like the guitar, ma- the master in whatever guitar, they were all metalheads. Mm-hmm. They would sing guttural. So I was like, maybe I can sing like that. And then I totally did. So when one of my friends in the music department heard that, he was like, well, I'm going to write a song for you to sing, girl. And I was there. I was like in the auditorium of the university with this like, you know, 24-year-olds. And I am like 11, like like chubby little like black girl, you know. And I'm just like, blah, 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 you know, and they're like, it was crazy. And then they were like, oh, you want to be in a band? And then I yeah. So I had a band. I was, yeah, I was my first band. I was like 12. I can't believe I don't do drugs. Like, I can't believe I don't drink. Like, because that scene is like, that's, that was there, you know. It's like Mm -hmm. these metal shows and everyone's like 30 and 50, you know. It's like so vulnerable, but I survived. (laughs) You You were just taken up by it. Yeah, I just, you know, I was this, uh, you know, I was this... I don't know, genius kid, you know, like I was like golden child of the scene. So, so when I came to Canada, it was just kind of like, whew. and why'd you come here? Like civil war in the country and like kidnapping threats to my sister. And my mom was like, nope, uh, I'm going to take my kids to a place where nothing happens. So she found London, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rude awakening, you know, because, uh, Up to that point, racism to me was a concept. And I was living in a racist society, but unaware because I was just, you know, like I was sheltered by my art and music. Like I was uh, in like living in this bubble. So racist things would happen to me in my school because I went to this bilingual school that was like a rich school or whatever. And the kids uh, were like white Colombians, you know, like they would like come up to me and they would like take samples of my hair to put it under a microscope 
because you know it's like why is my hair normal and not your hair oh, God. I want to find out but I would not even blink I would just be like oh that's an interesting experiment you know it's you just, didn't think it was because you were different yeah but then and then I moved to Canada and then it was like whoa you know because it's like Canada is supposed to be this like benevolent like perfect best country in the world you know and uh I didn't even know there were First Nations people here. Like, the picture of Canada is this, um, you know, snow and pine trees and uh, wolves and uh, a deer and, like, a white man with skis, you know. My siblings went to this school that was, like, a Catholic school, and uh, <laughs> they wear uniforms and stuff, and I was like, well, I guess I have to ride or I have to go, and I uh, went to uh, register and uh, before I opened my mouth they were like we are full for ESL like we cannot bitch who told you I want ESL like, are you listening to me like look <laughs> I'm pretty sure my English is better than yours like um, uh, let's do a spelling test right now girl like mm. <laughs> and then a friend of my mom's was like oh but there's like an art school called uh, HBBL like, you should enroll her there and I was embarrassed I painted murals in the school I owned that school I was 19 and the people that I was going to school with were 16 mm -hmm. right because when once you come from another country you you're just you know you just have to give the credits or the whatever even though I had like a university like I had all these credits like it meant nothing so I was in, you know, in the 11th grade, you know, like I'm in high school again. What? You went from university at yeah, 11 to, to, to be in like a high school at 19, you know, yeah. it was bizarre. Somehow ended up married at 20 or 19, going on 20 with uh, some white man from the States. He was a really, really good musician. And we had a baby, and we lived like a really simple life in London. And then I put out a song that we made together, and then it blew up. And then what I, song was it? Mueve. Okay. So it, I accidentally was back on, right? Like I wasn't planning on it or anything. I was con content with this like simple life, you know, in little apartment with my baby, with my baby daddy, <laughs> and just like normal, you know. But then, okay. I guess I guess this is what I'm doing now, um, but I wasn't ready, right? Like um, we were that young. Like how old I was? Like 21, and I'm like getting invited to play these festivals and stuff. There's not a single contract. Like I don't have a manager. I don't have a book. I don't have nothing. Like I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So of course I go on tour, yeah, but I come back no money. Mm -hmm. The music industry is brutal, right? So. And then I separated with baby daddy and then I was like, no more London for me. So he went back to the States and I came to Toronto, mm -hmm. brought my son. And I lived in a house with uh, two white women. And I shared a room with my son because I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to go to a fort rent. And, but now pff, I'm killing it. I live in that same house. I pay for it myself with my new man, my son, like... It's like a miracle, right? So it's like all the things that happen, like I just jumped, you know, I just did it because I am just so confident in my talent and uh, which I wasn't before, which is why people took advantage. But um, but like now I'm here and I'm like ready to just like with this knowledge and this power that I have just like 
<clears throat> Take it all, mommy. <laughs> This is your year. I feel like the past four years have been my year. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I just feel like every time it's just, like, better and better mm-hmm. and better. Like, I just feel like I just get better. So, when I look at your presence online and your, like, music, listen to it, and it just seems like it isn't kind of confined to a geography the way that a lot of Canadian music is. Yeah. Um, you know, you released the cover of Rihanna's work. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, like totally blew up and mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of the listens were from all around the world yeah. you have shows where it's like most of the audience is white and then mm-hmm. you'll have another show where most of the audience is not white mm-hmm. and what does it feel like to kind of be in the in between before I didn't like it but I'm finding a way to embrace it I'm finding a way to um, exist within those worlds that I just know what to give you know I I know when to get angry, you know, I know when to get emotional. Um, I I understand, I can read the audience so good right now, you know, like there are things that I don't have to say in front of certain audiences anymore. So I'm just like... Like what kinds of things? Well, like if I'm going to be playing a festival in a park and the majority is just like white families, you don't want to push it too much, right? Like the message that I bring, you know, and instead of saying like, hey, welcome to KKK Canada, like in a funny way, I, I won't say that. I would just say like, acknowledging the land, we're acknowledging the land. Because I'm like thinking about like singer songwriter. What would a singer songwriter say? <laughs> right? So what I'm would just Sarah like, McLaughlin yeah, say if exactly. she was acknowledging the land? Yeah. How would she say it? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just kind of, I'm playing, right? I'm just playing, you know. Like, I'm still going to say it, but I know that there's better ways to say things because I want to be rich. I want to be famous. Like, I want to be so rich. So what I understand and what I've been uh, studying from, like, Rihanna and uh, all those people is that you're obviously political, but you're not obvious about it. So those are things that, you know, two years ago, I didn't know that. And I was just like pff, bringing Canadian flags and putting them on, upside down and like dressing my band in like the Canadian flag poncho and just like making like a whole scene and like fuck the queen. And you know, because I, I come from punk. How do you talk about it without scaring the money away? <laughs> and who's got the money? Mm-hmm. We know who's got the money. Mm-hmm. So... That's how I exist in both worlds, you know. It's like when people call me, it's like, hey, there's a rally and we don't have a lot of money. I'm like, man, what money are you going to give me, man? Like, keep your money. Like, I'll be there. Like, sure. But when I get like a book, you know, it's like, uh, 1,000? Uh, you have 2,000? <laughs> if you don't have 2,000, then I'm not performing. And then they and they come through. Here's the 2,000. Mm-hmm. Oh, what about the transportation, boo-boo? <laughs> It happened, right? Mm-hmm. Because I understand my power. I know it's like, oh, let me look at the bill. Oh, I'm the only brown one. You better recognize the token. So you better pay extra for the token. So that's, you know, when before I would just be like, I hate this. No, 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 no. Like, actually, you got this grant for this festival probably because of uh, diversity. So this diversity, you're going to have to pay for it. It's even with my paintings, too. It's like... Oh, how much is it? She's like, well, are you a student? You know, it's like, 
right? Like, what are you? you know, the value like, is contingent on who you it, are. Yeah, that's exactly what mm-hmm. I do. It is just like, you know, if I like a brown teenager wants to buy one of my paintings and it's two hundred bucks, I'll give it to you for fifty bucks. You, yeah, you have to have my art here. You go. Mm-hmm. You know, there you go. It's more valuable for me that you have it because you're gonna keep it. You're gonna understand it, value it more. Put it on your Instagram. Put it on your Facebook. Take a selfie with it. Than like the old white people, right? And when the old white people come through, how much is it? Three hundred dollars, right? Like, and what are they gonna say? Well, they're like, oh, okay, yeah. She's like, what's it about? It's about when my childhood in Colombia and so magical and running through the fields. <laughs> Exoticize. You can tell your friends when they come over. Yeah, that this is a nice like, Colombian artist. No, actually, it's about <laughs> Kim Kardashian. You know, it's like is Kim Kardashian if Kim Kardashian was a baker is what that is about. <laughs> but you don't need to know that because I'm gonna sell this to you and you are gonna buy it, right? So it's like, oh, you want a fantasy here? I don't care. What do I care? Yeah, you know, it's like, like I really respect and like admire MIA. And when MIA like does like big campaigns stuff like that, it's like I totally get it. Like when people criticize MIA for doing like music for Mercedes or whatever, it's just like, eh, you know what's she gonna be doing with that money? You know where that money's gonna go? That money's gonna fund all these programs for refugees, right? Like that's the thing. It's like I'll play the game. It's like me saying no to a corporation, saying no to their money. They're gonna give it to someone else, and that person might not want to use it for the purposes that I would use it to for. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> like that's what I'm pursuing. I'm I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that royalty. I'm looking for that royalty money. I'm looking for that living off of this one song money for the rest of my life money. Like mm-hmm. because the ideas that I have need funding. They need money, and uh, to depend on like a grant system like like Canada we might not it might not be the best idea because if your art is political and is rejecting like the the construct of the Canadian landscape you know they're not going to give you the money mm-hmm. so get it from McDonald's whatever <laughs> same thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
that it was a Canadian movie called Porky's that launched the whole teen sex comedy genre that led to movies like American Pie and Superbad. I also didn't know that it was paid for by the Canadian government. American International Pictures offered the ultimate nightmare. Cannibal girls. There is never a meat shortage for cannibal girls. You may never sleep again after experiencing raw meat. I imagine as each one died, the others ate him. If you think that was a trailer for a 1950s Hollywood B-movie, you'd be wrong. Cannibal Girls was Canadian. A schlocky, silly, tasteless Canadian movie, one that would never get made today. There are hundreds more like it. Movies like The Rats. They've gotten into the subway. The Death Lords. The universe can suck my... And of course, who could forget the kinky coaches and the pom-pom pussycats? Ever see what happens to them after they smoke that marijuana? They get crazier than chicken ice cream. All of these films were made in the mid-70s to the early 80s. During that time, we made so much crap you wouldn't believe it. Almost all of these movies were 100% awful. And yet, I totally love them. These were zombie movies, cannibal movies, slasher flicks, and horny teen sex comedies. They were cheesy, tacky, sexist, unbelievably stupid, and a lot of fun. But most of them were never seen by audiences. They never got distribution. You couldn't watch them in a theater, catch them at the drive-in, or on late-night TV. Sure, all of these movies would have loved to be big hits, but they didn't need to be. They were made to take advantage of a government tax incentive program. It's now known as the tax shelter era of Canadian film, a time where any dentist or doctor with 10,000 bucks to invest could buy their way into showbiz risk-free. And every penny of their investment was tax deductible, even if the movie was a bomb. Yes, the government of Canada was briefly in the softcore exploitation movie business. This is the story of why the tax shelter era happened, why it worked, and how we lost it all because of one unexpected blockbuster, a groundbreaking piece of garbage called Porky's. When I was a teenager, I had seen some Canadian horror movies and so forth, like Cannibal Girls. These films were often written off entirely, like all these movies made in the 70s and 80s were terrible. That's Paul Karup. Thanks to him, the flame of the tax shelter era will never die. By day, he's a technical writer for an accounting firm. But by night, for the past 17 years, he's been running Canuxploitation.com, a living history of Canadian B-movies. The tax shelter era really happened from about 1975 to 1982. All the money that you invested in a Canadian film at the time would be a write-off on your tax return. Bureaucrats were trying to kickstart a film industry in Canada. You know, you can see a drastic improvement in the kinds of films that are being made, the technical quality of these films. Um, it really did help train a generation to make movies. Before the tax shelter era, we did have Canadian films, but we didn't really have a film industry. In 1974, there were just three features produced in Canada. But in 1979, we made 77. By comparison, Hollywood in 1979 made 99 films. For movie people... Making movies in Canada had suddenly become a decent business. Movie people like Don Carmody. Thanks to the tax shelter era, producer Don Carmody got his start and went on to bigger things in Hollywood. His films include Chicago, Resident Evil, A Christmas Story, Goodwill Hunting, and Weekend at Bernie's. Here's how he describes his life's work. We've never really paid much attention to critics, and I still don't, because uh, I don't make movies for critics. I make them for an audience, because nothing better than standing at the back of a theater listening to a bunch of people laugh at your movie. 
Don wasn't the only major talent to come out of the tax shelter era. There was also his collaborator, Ivan Reitman. Ivan had been uh, turned on to David Cronenberg, and David submitted a script that was the basis for uh, Came From Within or Shivers. or I think then in those days it was called Starliner Towers, and uh, that was the first movie that we made. Prepare yourself for the most frightening experience of your life. They came from within. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. When the movie was released, there were so many people that were just outraged that Canadian tax money had been made to make this piece of what they referred to as pornography. If this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist. Quick. To say that Shivers created a national shitstorm would be an understatement. The crappiness of the film was actually debated in Parliament. They basically wanted to deport both Ivan and I and just lock David up in an insane asylum for even thinking up this crazy stuff, which I find hysterical now, of course, that David's a cultural icon. David Cronenberg, of course, is now one of Canada's most respected film auteurs. He's been called to the Order of Canada, so it's hard to imagine that he was once public enemy number one. He was never sent to an insane asylum, but his movies did almost get him evicted from his home, thanks to journalist and former movie critic Robert Fulford. I think it still is at the top among the disgusting films I've ever seen. Anyway, the top five, I'm sure. Robert Fulford wrote the cruelest movie review in Canadian history. I said if using public money is the only way that English Canada can have a film industry, then perhaps English Canada should not have a film industry. It was a a highly disgusting movie and uh, uh, beneath contempt as a piece of film, I didn't, uh, didn't like it. After the review came out, Cronenberg's landlord was so appalled that he tried to oust the young director from his apartment. But Fulford stands by his review to this day. Uh, I believe that it's the only case of where a filmmaker has been thrown out of his rented place because of the quality of the film. Taxpayers were slowly waking up to the fact that the whole program was, in a sense, a scam. Canucksploitation.com author Paul Corrupt. People from all walks of life were... were uh funding films at the time, Any, anything from dentists and lawyers to, uh, to bankers to uh, anyone who had a, some extra money that they would like to, that they wanted to stick, hide away from the government for a year. It was sort of like the producers. Since investors were using the program to hide money, the odd success like Bill Murray's summer camp romp meatballs could actually be a problem. The investors were really pissed off that meatballs made money because it screwed up their their tax returns. Producer, Don Carmody. So all these doctors and dentists, they couldn't get the the big write-off because the movie actually made money. (laughs) Journalist, Robert Fulford. The backers of these movies, whose names they will never know, were a whole bunch of corrupt corrupt people in the suburbs of Toronto who had too much money. And this is a way of pretending that you're doing something creative and imaginative when it doesn't take any imagination at all. It's hard to find anyone who will admit to investing in these movies, but I did find one guy. Dr. Cy Silverberg is a retired sex therapist, most famous for his book, Lasting Longer, the treatment program for premature ejaculation. Yeah, I'd probably invest in half a dozen. It's really like investing the, the government's money. You'd have to be sending it to them in taxes anyway. It was kind of a you know, romantic, exciting thing to do. For a while, it seemed like the program could survive a bit of political and critical pressure. After all, if the idea was to stimulate a film industry simply to create jobs, it worked. It didn't matter if they were any good. It didn't matter if they made any money. 
The directors, producers, actors, and investors were all happy. Until one big fat hit came along and ruined the whole thing. 20th Century Fox would like to introduce you to Pee Wee and his pals. When they're not in class, they're into everything. But what they'd like to get into most is a place called Porky's. If you've never heard of Porky's, then you are probably a millennial. But for old men like me, Porky's was a crucial piece of cinema, formative to the stunted sexual development of a whole generation of sweaty young men. It is the granddaddy of all teen sex comedies. Without it, there would be no American Pie, no Superbad. And it is a part of our Canadian heritage. The film follows a group of Florida high school students on their epic quest to get into a brothel. And it's just as sexist and as lewd as many other exploitation movies, but Porky's transcends the genre. It's not just so bad it's good, it's actually good. The producer of Porky's, Don Carmody. I've been close with a guy called Bob Clark who had made some Canadian movies, which were also tax credit movies in those days. Bob had brought me a script that he couldn't get any traction on called Porky's. And I remember reading it and... Uh, the first five pages was basically Pee-wee waking up in bed with a, you know, a piss hard on and measuring the size of his penis. I'm like, what? <laughs> we can't make this. Oh, it is. It's getting shorter. Shit. Then I went, well, that's exactly why we have to make it because we can't make this. Porky's was huge, and it was the hugeness of it that ended up bringing the whole tax shelter era to a grinding halt. Porky's was a huge, huge success, and it actually held the box office record for the biggest Canadian film for at least 30 years, and there's still some debate o over whether, when you adjust for inflation, whether that whether Porky's still has that record, much to the chagrin of a lot of people. Canada could endure hundreds of tacky flops, but it couldn't stand one tacky hit, especially one with as high a profile as Porky's had. My uh, girlfriend at the time begged me not to do the movie after she read the script. That's Mark Harrier, an actor better known as Billy McCarty, the tall, lanky voice of reason in the film. People who, who cared about art <laughs> hated it. Its success brought the criticism of the tax shelter program to a boiling point. Everyone now knew that this piece of trash was paid for by the government with taxpayer money. And what people could see on the screen wasn't even Canadian. Actor, Mark Harrier. It didn't seem Canadian in terms of culture at all. It definitely seemed American. The main, uh, main core guys were all American actors. So in that regard, it was, it was always an American film, and there didn't seem to be any Canadian part about it. Connexploitation.com's Paul Karup. I think Porky's was the kind of film that exemplified the kind of Canadian film that critics and, and filmmakers didn't want to be seen made in Canada. We didn't want to be defined by these films, who, which weren't identifiably Canadian. I think that was really kind of the downfall. Eight months after the release of Porky's, the tax shelter program was cut in half. And a short while later, it was decimated completely. There is something beyond the awful deliciousness of these films that has always struck me. And it comes from a conversation that I've been having with people since I started working in Canadian film and television. Why in Canada can we not have a real movie industry? Where we're making tons of films of every kind every year. Genre films, art films, good films, bad films, all of it. And when I discovered these films, these so-called tax shelter films, I realized that we once actually had just that. Thank you.
On this one episode of his CBC show Wiretap, Jonathan Goldstein got this guy, Rapmaster Maurice, to call up his friends and deliver a scathing revenge rap. By way of homage, we got Rapmaster Maurice to revenge rap Jonathan Goldstein. Hello? Yeah, I'd like to speak to Jonathan. Yes. Jonathan, this is Rapmaster Maurice. No, you're well, kidding me. I'm absolutely not kidding you. Word around town is that you betrayed your Canadian radio fans and your co-workers at the CBC. They're really hurt by your decision. They're not sure what exactly they should do. So I made a rap about it. Oh, God. Well, my name's more recent. I'm here to say that your behavior is disappointing in a major way. Now, I have heard, and I'm sure it's true, someone's forgetting their roots, and that someone is you. Now, wiretap is a part of who you are today, and Canada also helps. I think it's safe to say. But you betrayed them both by moving back to the States. Ending up in that country sounds like the worst of fates. It's just so typical is what this rap is about, that you got a taste of fame and then you sold right out. I can't believe he killed Wiretap just to hang out with Moby and RuPaul. Peace! No peace. Sounds like you're stunned into silence. I am. The radio guy ain't got nothing to say this time. I don't. You just killed me softly with your song. Not even so softly. It's not too late to change your mind. Move on back. Really? Yeah. Find yourself on Speaker's Corner one day. Speak your mind. You mean Speaker's Corner will still have me? Absolutely. Canada loves you. Oh, well, that's nice. I'm feeling really conflicted about my... I always feel kind of conflicted about my choices, but right now I'm feeling really conflicted. Or at least you know people care. I guess so. It would just be nicer, though, I think, to hear it like... Uh, if it wasn't being, like, rapped at me. If it was just like, people really care. Oh, maybe this is a good way to get the point across. Maybe they feel like you weren't listening before. Well, thank you, Rapmaster Maurice. It's been a really long while. Do you remember being on my show? Of course. That was a big part of my uh, career skyrocket. Oh, man, really? Absolutely. Oh, I'm glad. People loved you. I have to say, I uh, really appreciate what you did for the Rapmaster. Sure. And then, so after after that, where did you go on to? Did you stay on Canadian radio shows? I did, yeah. I went a little farther up north. Got all the way up there, did some homesteading reps. But then did you did you move on to America? I tried. Didn't work out. No. Can I ask you a question? You can ask me anything you want. Because I know you don't work for free, right? I absolutely do not. Are you permitted to say who's who commissioned you? I think you'll find out soon enough. got a great music scene but we don't see as many huge stars rolling through as like new york or la that's why when rihanna filmed the video for her number one single work which featured drake at the real jerk caribbean restaurant in toronto's east end it was kind of a big deal it was this 
steamy dance hall scene that attracted some of Toronto's most talented dancers. I asked one of them what it was like. Here's AC Mensa. I had a lot of fun on set. Spex was DJing and he's hype. So I felt like I was at a dance hall jam. So I was jamming. Like I was going off. I was sweating. The room was hot. And I like had to get tissue multiple times because I was just like, <laughs> oh my God. Because he was just playing tracks. Before he even dropped Rihanna's song, he was just playing tracks because mm. they were just getting extra B-roll stuff. Cool. <clears throat> to me, it's like I grew up listening to dance hall because of my older sister so I know about the culture I know what happens within the culture and it's basically what you saw in the music video it's mm-hmm. a lot of bubbling it's a lot of dancing on different things and what's w- bubbling <laughs> I, hate you. I know I hate but you. no I don't know <laughs> but right now I'm gonna plead in ignorance okay so here's here's a little uh, lesson. So um, what you see in the video as what we call uh, bubbling is when a guy and a girl are dancing together. It could be guy behind girl. It could be girl guy facing each other. It could very well be guy in front of girl. Uh, we use props, chairs. Uh, we use uh, the wall. We use the floor sometimes. It's one of those things where if the wine and if if. <laughs> this is so <laughs> funny that I'm describing this right now. <laughs> you're doing well. You're doing well. <laughs> if the the wine, well, which is also called the circular move motion of the hips, yes. Um, <laughs> if the wine is so sweet, and I decide I have told my students that sweetness is enjoyment. Um, if if you are enjoying the wine so much that you need to include props with it in order to be able to handle, as we like to say with, within treaty culture, handle the wine, that's basically how you would describe what bubbling is. <laughs> what? I'm not sure I understand that. Okay, okay what, are these, oh, damn it. what are these props? Okay, what are you doing so, with them? Okay, so... The girl can have her hands on the wall while she is bubbling the guy. The guy can have his back towards the wall mm-hmm. as a way to stabilize himself because you, the last thing you want to know is that you're going to push the girl or you're going to fall off balance as the guy. That means, quote unquote, that you can't handle her, essentially, mm-hmm. in our culture, you know. And then, you know, some girls like to sometimes throw in some acrobatic uh, situations into the whole thing so they can have their legs wrapped around a guy and I understand, I know a lot of people in just watching the video were just like, oh my God, they're having sex. Oh my gosh. No, 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 no. This is what happens within our culture. You're now getting a very good look of what it means to be jamming two guys and two girls or a guy and a girl, whatever it is, in a club. I'm not going home with you. You may not get my number. In carnival culture, it's called you're teething, you could teeth a wine and, and go. So... It's not necessarily about the fact that like, oh, okay, I need to dance up on you and now I'm going to go home and sleep with you. It has nothing to do with mm-hmm. it. It's the enjoyment factor. Like the thing is already done. It's yeah. not like it's a contract for I know, some later I know. thing. It's, it's like, like okay, we did the we thing. Have... We danced together. What do you, <laughs> we, got? you How is the sex going to be better than this? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and then sometimes it's a good indication to know whether or not he's good or not. You know, if a guy can bubble, then you're like, okay, yeah. this is something to look forward to. They wanted all of that thrown into the video. And to me, it was seen. By the time you got to the end of it, you're just like, oh, yeah, this feels like a basement party. This feels like a Sean Paul get busy circa mm-hmm. 2000s kind of vibe. You mm-hmm. know, where it was just like it just felt so good at the 12th hour, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th hour. Maybe not not as nice. <laughs> um, 
20th hour, probably not as nice, but, you know. How did they keep you going for that amount of time? We did take some liquid courage okay. uh, to kind of help. And the bartender was pouring out the liquor. So then people just took the drinks. We yeah, weren't really sense. supposed to. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you got to like pad your paycheck a little. You know, where it's just like, I'm not, I'm not really getting a lot for this. So I'm going to take <laughs> <Yeah>. this drink. <laughs> it's like taking a stapler or something. You know, you like, like the office is like, you're giving me $5 an hour. It's fine. I'm going to take these copy books. <laughs> I'm going to take the photocopy machine. Like you just you're gonna take the extra stuff that you wouldn't necessarily get yeah um but it was fun it was a really long day it's i think the longest time i've ever spent on set oh really even 20 hours in all of these other music videos yep. you've never spent this long did they pay you by the hour did they <laughs> no <laughs> by no. the job <laughs> you just get paid for the job right. unfortunately and as however it, long it takes it takes yeah they disclose the amount and then they disclose the audition day so everybody audition and because it was open up to the public that also made it very difficult. So you got everybody and their mother at this audition. And they have no idea what dance hall is. They have no idea about the culture. They don't really have much respect for it. So in my head, why are you going to go to the video? Mm. You know? It's um, just like some experience. Yeah. Have. And were then, they all dancers or was no, it just general? It literally, it was a, it, there was a dance call and a general call, which was basically all grouped into one. Mm -hmm. So a lot of dancers, a lot of people went out. To me, in my head, there was a lot of people that should have been in the video that didn't get in it. There were people that, in no shade to them, that, that were in the video that I kind of questioned just because of the fact that I'm like, ah, are you sure you do dance hall? And not like the commercial version that you might see in a Justin Bieber video. Like this is like this is the Rihanna version. Like she's from Barbados. Like you're getting the the real authentic version of what dance hall is. Basically, it was unfortunate the amount that we got paid. Um, however, that aside, I still had fun on set. Mm -hmm. I just pray that um, when big budget things like this come into the city from big names like them that we get the same pay that the crew does through the grapevine i've heard that you know drake really wanted rihanna to shoot this video in toronto so they shot the version there but then i guess he was able to convince her to come to toronto to shoot it which was amazing and it was great and x was the director and all of that is fantastic but then why do you insist on saying that the talent that is going to technically make the video mm -hmm. if you were to take all of that talent out you would get the first version of the work video yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is just the two of you bubbling each other dancing the boring part exactly and then you get to see the other version when you're like yo this is hype but is it hype when you know that nobody really got paid well to do the video? I don't even know if they know how much we got paid. As dancers, we tend to be like, well, it's the artist. How come the artists don't know? And people are like, oh, how did Drake and Rihanna let this happen? I'm like, you can't really say they let it happen. You're more looking at the production company. Whoever, whoever decided to do the numbers that yeah. said, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be able to bring forward. Right. And we want to do it for the cheapest cost ever. You're still saving money by doing it in, in Canada because you're bringing in states people. Right. Their dollars. Their dollars. Your dollars worth right. more. So technically, if you even paid us 300, you still would have got a discount. If you paid us 500, you still would have got a discount. Mm -hmm. I understand you were going on quantity, but it would have felt nicer if you respected the dancers and the scene that it was. Mm -hmm. And then if you just needed extras to be bodies, then you can pay them the 200. Yeah, it's like it's not like you guys were extras in that. Like watching mm -hmm. those two videos back to back is like the difference between being on in a <laughs> like really great party that you want to be at versus being on like a bad date. That's yeah. <laughs> like, It was just I was like, why did you even include that I second know. part? Like the only good part of that second part was Rihanna's shirt. So I was also thinking about 
when I tried to look for your videos、mm-hmm. that you danced in, I couldn't because you weren't credited on them. Oh yeah, I've never been credited for any music videos that I've been in. Say, for instance, in like the Drake、uh, and Rihanna video, the work video, I was fortunate enough to be one of the dancers that was seen. Like they, the last clip, the slow mo、mm-hmm. at the very end, you get a chance to kind of catch my face, and I was like, okay, well at least I'm actually can say that I was really in the video. And it's <laughs> funny, anytime people are like, oh, were you in? Oh, you were in the Drake and Rihanna video. They're like, but do I actually see you? And I was like, look at the video and tell me if you see me. Then、mm-hmm. you know that's all I can say to people. You do all this work. And then the editor comes in and fucks shit up, and then you have no idea whether or not you're even going to be in the final product. By the end of it, you might see half of an eye and a hand, and you're just like, "Well, I can't really put that on my reel." As a dancer and as an artist, you had to figure out other ways to help invent yourself, because、mm-hmm. like you'll have the most amazing dancers be on tour with Missy Elliott, be on tour with Rihanna, be in. And Beyonce's music video, and be teaching classes like I am at my studio. Once all of that is done, like、mm-hmm. it's hard because a lot of people will chase after these jobs with these artists、um, for their 1.5 second of fame. And it's funny when everyone's like, "Oh my god, a music video! I want to be in it." I'm like, "Really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> Are you ready for 15 hour days on set? Are you ready to be told do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again for hours and hours on end?、Uh, to go there, stand there, stand there, fix your hair, do like it's literally like." The amount of work that goes into it, it doesn't ever really justify that you're like, oh my god, I was in this video. This episode of The Imposter featured AC Mensa, Jonathan Goldstein, Rapmaster Maurice, Jeff Siskind, and Lido Pimienta. You heard the songs La Capacidad by Lido Pimienta and Mary Poppins Pockets by New Fries. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton and Katie Jensen, and original music is by Nathan Burley. Follow us on Twitter at Imster, that's I M P S T R, and you can find me at Alia Pabani. Our website is canadalandshow.com/imp, and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com/canadaland. We do this every week, so if you like what you heard today, subscribe to the Imposter right now. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands, and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince dot com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by one hundred and sixty one percent. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers twenty four hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get ten percent off your first order with code Summer at oseamalibu dot com. That's O S E A Malibu dot com code Summer.